coming up on this episode of the Real Lives podcast. And then, yeah, the, la- the last week, we just completely and utterly ran out of money. And so we, we ended up, yeah, raiding bins and in the backs of supermarkets, finding stuff that had been thrown away. And it's okay to have a bad day. Everyone has a bad day. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You're going to get a day where everything's not lining up right, weather's not right, that sort of thing. Your feet are sore. You spilt your tea in the morning. That's fine. But if you start getting it progressively going lower, then that's going to become a problem at some point later on. I would hate to go back to New Zealand now and see the change because I, I was there in 2008 and things will be very different now to what, what they were then. And I, I've noticed it particularly in Patagonia where I return back and forth a lot. Um, the very first hitch I ever had, which was quite amusing, was in the back of a pickup truck with a big pig. On today's episode of the Real Life Podcast, I'm excited to have on Will Copestake. Will is an adventurer from up in Scotland, and he has done many of expeditions, some of the most interesting that I've seen. From hiking all of the Munros up in Scotland to, you know, hiking across Iceland in the space of, I think it was 19 days, um, kayaking in Patagonia and setting up his own company, you know, backpacking across New Zealand and obviously splitting his time now between half the year in Patagonia and half the year in uh, Scotland. And in this episode, we obviously get into all of that, and we also discuss things such as like how travel has changed over the years from when he first started going when he was 18, 19, and how the prices have increased significantly, and also like what you can do as beginner travelers if you're looking to get into those kind of expeditions and things like that. So obviously, you can find all of Will's links down in the description below, so go and support him where you can, and also if you want to go on one of his tours that he does in Scotland or Patagonia, and feel free to go to his website and you can probably find the links to that there. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode with Will. Will, welcome onto the podcast. Appreciate you coming on, appreciate your time. Um, I start the same with every guest that I have on. Tell us who you are and what you do. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm Will Copestake. I run a sea kayaking company in the northwest of Scotland um, and I'm probably best known for my big adventure in Scotland uh, back in 2013-14 where I kayaked around the country solo and then climbed all the Munro Mountains, mostly in winter. Since then, I bounced back and forth between Scotland and Patagonia, uh, leading trips and running kayaking trips around the world. Amazing. Can't wait to get onto the part about Patagonia because it's one of the places that I've always wanted to visit and I've not got the chance to yet. I've obviously got many years left to do that. But yeah, I want to get onto that at some point. But I want to go back to the beginning and just sort of start with what drew you to this life of adventure that you now pursue so i think it's more kind of i'm a product of my surroundings so i, I live in ullapool which is a small town in the northwest of scotland and the culture in my family and around my friends up here was going camping for the weekend or sailing or paddling or walking was just kind of a normal part of daily life um, obviously you're not doing it every day but it wasn't an un- unusual thing to do on the weekend or an unusual pastime. And slowly, little by little, the more you do, the more comfortable you get with it. Um, and as as you get past being a teenager, you then start looking at greater horizons and start thinking, where can I go? What can I push myself to? And that evolves over time. And for me, that's been, been really fortunate. It, it developed into a career in the outdoors. Uh, I ended up doing a degree uh, in environmental science and outdoor education and that then led on to meeting friends, doing expeditions and, and, and built into me running my own company uh, up here in Scotland. What led you to you? Why, why did you go to university then? Because you you take me as one of the from what the the conversations I've heard of you and also the things I've read about you. You don't take me as the kind of person that would 
enjoy the typical university route, if that makes sense? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, like everyone, really, I finished high school. Um, certainly, the kind of culture at that point around my, again, friends and family was that it's good to get a degree. Um, I'm not entirely sure I agree with that now in adult life, but I don't regret it at all. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, most of the most intelligent people I know were out with going to university, uh, practically intelligent folk up here. Um I think for me, I, I, I sort of put that in the bank with the idea of going into the science fields. Uh, initially, I thought I'd go into the, a science background. And before I went there, I then went off on a gap year to New Zealand. And that's where I really fell in love with the outdoor work and the outdoor environment and, and thought that then I'd probably put my focus into that. Um, but going through a sort of science, it was a science combined with outdoor education degree. And so that gave me the open door that, if I wanted to go down that field, that was always an option. Um, and I think ultimately leads to a greater understanding of what you're exploring. Do you think that what you did at university then has had some effect on the way you do things now? Or is it still, even even though it isn't obviously an environmental-based degree, do you think it's just not had any impact on anything you've done? No, I, I mean, I, th I think it's had a great impact. Um, I, funnily enough, I was actually talking to someone literally last night who emailed asking about going to university or whether or not to go through a like a HNC or an apprenticeship scheme to go into the outdoor industry and I, I was very difficult to give a good answer for me it worked out really well um, part of that was to do with the the way it taught you to think it teaches you a very analytic way of thinking and around the, the kind of course content but I'm also aware that that course content I could have probably learned much quicker if I went and did an apprenticeship or followed on with an outdoor centre or something on those lines. What really benefited me there was the people I met and what I did with them. And so I met some really good friends who were like-minded and that put me into the expedition in Iceland that then ultimately led me wanting to do more. And so probably as much the people I met and what I did out with the university is what led me into where I am now than the degree itself, if that makes sense. And I think it doesn't really matter what yeah. you do with that. It's what, what you do around it. Um, but I know an awful lot of people in the outdoor industry who, who didn't go that route and went straight into apprenticeships or following HNCs, and they've, they've got fantastic careers, so it's, it's totally doable. Yeah, I think the, the, one of the main benefits of university, what I found, was that you, you have a lot of time on your hands. So you get you have time to go and try yeah. new things, try new hobbies, meet new people, all those kind of things. And I think if you, when you jump straight into apprenticeships, you kind of miss that part of your life. You never really get that back, I don't think. Yeah, I think that's a really valid point. Um, I mean, certainly we were very fortunate with our university. We had three month long summer holidays. And in some of those years, we could do those really well. Uh, like I say, we, we went to Iceland in one of them and, and did a big expedition there. And many of the others, you we went climbing hills or uh, obviously summer jobs as well. <laughs> you, you, let's face it, students don't have much money. Um, but yeah, it allows you to do more around it. Um, but yeah, I think if you do go through more of an apprenticeship, you're kind of much more task focused. You're more likely to go sort of straight out of that into an outdoor centre or into following someone else in a, in a company and build from there. Yeah. So let's go on to your trip to New Zealand. Obviously, you were 18 years old when you started that trip. What was the plan when you were going into that? Was that to go and just do a working holiday and just sort of see if life on the other side was going to be 
you know, the grass will be greener kind of thing? Or was it solely to go and explore an adventure, sort of that South Island of New Zealand? Yeah, so I'll be totally honest. I really didn't know what I was doing when I went out there. Um, I'd saved up a little bit of money through summer jobs uh, through high school and really jumped out there, A, because some friends were there, B, because I had a relative out there, and, and C, because it seemed like a fairly easy starting country. English speaking, good hiking networks, relatively easy to get summer work. And I turned up there with the idea that I was going to do some hiking, but really didn't know what I was going to do. Been there for 10 months, that fell into them falling in love with their great walks network. They've got a really good system of national walks. And started going through one of them, then another one, and thought, actually, maybe this is what I'm going to do over 10 months. And then combined that with working a little bit for the Department of Conservation, their, their equivalent of like the Forestry Service and the Park Authorities, um, and odd jobs here and there. Um, but really fell in love with hiking and hitchhiking. Um, Really, really enjoyed hitchhiking there. Do you have any fun stories from hitchhiking? Because I've done it a couple of times myself and I've been in some weird and wonderful situations through the process of it. Yeah, so I mean, I've, I've had everything from highs to lows. I, I've, I've hitchhiked probably thousands of times now in Scotland, Iceland, New Zealand. Um, the very first hitch I ever had, which was quite amusing, was in the back of a pickup truck with a big pig. And I'd gone for a walk out of town and walked far further than I expected. I just thought, you know what, I'll put my thumb out and this farmer just chucked me in the back with his pigs. Um, I've been invited into people's oh, wow. houses. Uh, really funny one in Iceland, we got invited into this chap's house, uh, quite an old fellow. And he, he left me and my mate in his house and within about five minutes he went, oh, right, I'm off to work, uh, keys in the front door. So yeah, I just left us <laughs> at his house having basically just met us, which was kind of great. Um, yeah, that's never some really real any... trust in behaviour that. I don't think I could yeah, quite do that around yeah. here. Yeah, right. Um, but I've never really had that many bad experiences. A couple of, couple of drunk drivers maybe, but nothing that's really been concerning. Um, I did once hitchhike yeah. with a guy with no arms. So... That was strange. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> so, which uh, that wasn't the weird bit. The weird bit was that he was able to smoke while driving a manual car while driving way over the speed limit, which was kind of incredible and equally how, terrifying. How on earth um, does that did that even work? I bet you were sort of theoretically in the car. Yeah, I mean, he'd, he'd lived his whole life without having arms, and he, he was just completely mobile with it. And yeah, really nice fellow. Actually, he ended up giving us a tour of the town. We stayed at his house. He was a really nice guy. Oh, I love that. Absolutely love it. So getting back to New Zealand, you were there for, you said, 10 months. So where, how long of that did you spend hiking um, through, obviously, all these incredible walks that they have there? It was a majority of it, yeah. So you would go out for kind of five days to a week at a time and then come back and then you probably do about the same kind of in town or working. There's a couple of months I just did solid work with Department of Conservation. And there was quite a lot just kind of hitchhiking about and bumming about, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> sort of aimlessly traveling. And I, I quite I quite like that, the, the ability to just wake up one morning and go, right, I'll put my thumb out, I'll see where we end up, I'm vaguely going to go south or west, and we'll see where we go. And then when you get there, go, right, what hills are in the area, what paths are in the area, let's go see what we can do. So did you spend a lot of your time then camping, I'm guessing? Yeah, a lot of time camping. Um, I pretty quickly blew most of the money I'd saved on youth hostels, and then there was a lot, a lot of camping out around that. After that, <laughs> it was 
Uh, that's the first thing I noticed. So I moved over to Melbourne uh, about a year and a bit ago. And the first thing I noticed is how expensive accommodation and food, everything is obviously a lot more expensive, but especially hostels and hotels are just through the roof. Yeah, I think actually I, I've noticed it. I, I would I would hate to go back to New Zealand now and see the change because I, I was there in 2008 and things would be very different now to what, what they were then. And I, I've noticed it particularly in Patagonia where I return back and forth a lot. Um, but when I, I first went down to Chile, you could do things really on a shoestring and you had a lot of people like like I had been in New Zealand, really green to the out, outdoor sort of solo hiking and traveling not much experience, not much money, and they were just kind of going down on a shoestring and figuring it out. Now that's really changed. It's much more expensive. You've got to book lots in advance, pay lots of money, pay lots of visas and fees and hidden costs. And it's changed that dynamic there now. There's a lot less of those kind of young students and much more working professionals now, um, which I, I think it'd be very much, much harder if you're, if you're kind of young and going out to travel now. But there are still places you can do that. Um, a lot of them are quite wild, which is quite cool. Yeah. Mm. They, so when you got back from New Zealand to Scotland to go to university, did you struggle with that feeling of being stuck after spending obviously a lot of time being free, being able to go hiking, doing whatever, camp wherever, and then all of a sudden now you're in a bit of a routine, you've got university through the week and obviously probably working as well on the side of that. Yes, I think I was quite lucky in that respect in that I, I came back and went absolutely straight into university. And so it was one new experience going straight into the next new experience. And because it was still a vaguely outdoor based degree, that momentum kept going pretty quickly. Um, and so there wasn't that much chance for that post expedition blues that you occasionally get. I think the, the only time I have really badly had that was actually the trip we did mid-university with my friend in Iceland where we we ended up getting quite ill towards the end of it and we did complete what we went out to do but we ended up the last two weeks completely running out of money I mean literally going into the backs of bins around supermarkets and sort of scavenging stuff uh and we we ended up yeah just kind of not doing much that last week to 10 days and, and that really ended up with post-expedition blues much in the same way I find if you when lockdown happened, a lot of people got that. You suddenly go from momentum to nothing, and that's when you start having issues. Yeah, um. yeah, it's, it's it's a definite struggle. Like when I've been on trips, the like the the longest trip I've been on is like a traveling, so to speak, would be um, two months. And I found after that, just because of the differences in culture, the differences in routine, and then all of a sudden you come back and you're expected to get back into this almost nine to five routine. I was yeah, just totally. lost for months. Yeah, yeah, and it 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 could be quite it could be quite an interesting sort of process to go through that. It I, I found it really interesting post like I say post COVID lockdowns because I used to find you often trying to describe post expedition blues, which was is unusual for folk who haven't experienced that sort of post holiday mood change. But actually, when when lockdown happened, an awful lot of people got that for the first time in their lives. Suddenly, you got a complete change in momentum and it, it affects you in many different ways some people get busy some people wallow in it it depends very much kind of how you use your time as to how you come out of it i think yeah 
So let's get on to this trip of you crossing Iceland because I, I think it's a really interesting one to do. And also I love the story that I've heard of how you made your money to go and do it and how you were funding it. So if you could just get into that and sort of tell the story from start to start to end, that'd be great. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start kind of from scratch there. I, when I was in my university course, there was a group of about 15 of us to start with, and we were studying in the, the outdoor education part as well as the environmental science. So it was a quite a small congregate group. And there was one guy in that called Remy McMurtry, who ended up being a really close friend of mine, still is a really close friend of mine. And we, we had similar experience at that point, and we started doing loads of hills together. Now, we ended up being flatmates, and in our second year of university, decided we wanted to do something big uh, and do something overseas. Now, Remy had done an awful lot in the Alps and Europe, uh, and I'd done stuff in New Zealand. And so we, we kind of ruled those two areas out. And we, we debated between Iceland, Scandinavia, maybe the States. Scandinavia States were too expensive to get to. And so Iceland became the, the kind of one that had cheaper flights that we could go to and something we could do on a student budget. Initially, we planned that we would just go there and explore and climb some mountains. And then we got the map out and started drawing dots between things. I realised actually you could walk from the south to the north right through the centre, uh, which would take about a month. And that would be quite a fun trip to do. And a step up from what we'd done already, uh, a little bit wilder, a little bit more remote, but yet reasonably accessible to do in the summer, given the experience we had. It was the same price to buy a flight three months apart so the duration of our summer holidays as it was for one month and so we thought ah stuff it we'll just go for three months and we'll do the month hike and then we'll we'll climb some hills and do some exploring and just kind of spend some time out there the limiting factor obviously was budget uh we did both earn a little bit through summer jobs but we topped that income up by the semester before our trip we would carry water up to the top of a hill behind the university which is called Demiat. Uh, now, Demaya, it's, a, it's a quite a small hill, uh, it was four or five hundred metres or so, but it's one of the most hiked hills in the country because it's really accessible from the town. And so you'd, you'd hike the water up, which counted as our training, and then we'd sit there pretending to revise and sell cups of tea and coffee. And, and you, made, you made pretty good money for it. I mean, we were making anywhere between 70 and 100 pounds a day, just, just sat on the top selling t- cups of teas and coffees to folk. Um which I believe for a legal standpoint, you can only do with suggested donation. It can't actually be charging, um, but it works. Yeah. <laughs> and so we, we ended up, we set, we set I off mean, to Iceland. We had a, yeah, we had a budget of about a thousand pounds or less. I think it was actually slightly less. Uh, and that was to last us for three months. Um, obviously you're not spending much if you hitchhiking and hiking. So that was really food and fuel. How, so I'm guessing it was a lot more expensive than what you anticipated when you got out there. Yeah, so I mean, you, we budgeted and we, we did do some research online and kind of found what our food costs would be. Um, the the actual crossing, we'd managed to source a, a really good deal with Expedition Foods and they, they'd given us a really good price on, on freeze-dried meals for that. And then so the other two months around it, we we basically ate pasta. I think we did 11 days straight of smashed potato with cup of soups. Um, oh, we, nice. Yeah, we did all sorts of really budget budget foods like that. Um, and then, yeah, the, la- the last week, we just completely and utterly ran out of money. And so we, we ended up, yeah, raiding bins in, in the backs of supermarkets, finding stuff that had been thrown away. And the last two days, basically just drank did... the unlimited free tups of coffee in the airport. 
did that cause any conflict between the two of you as being at a point where you obviously don't have any money to buy food and you're sort of struggling to get by did were you or were you absolutely like sort of you, you were both on a level and sort of knew that this is just what we've got to do i think we, we were both kind of happy on it i mean the both Remy and I, at that point in our lives, both got a little bit of a kick out of being dirtbags. I think it's fair to say. So, like, there was, <laughs> there was, so, there was something kind of weirdly fun about it in a sort of type two sort of way. Um, the slight it's challenge fun, we had yeah. is, that, yeah, it totally, it totally. The, the bigger challenge we had was actually Remy is anaphylactic allergic to dairy, eggs, and nuts, and so that massively limits what you could eat. And so we we were quite often having to work around that as well, which was fun. Um, but yeah, uh, no, the, the only thing that really was while, uh, yeah, yeah. Doing <laughs> some while doing that causes some problems. <laughs> ah, yeah, no, it, like I say, it wasn't too bad. We, we, the, the bigger problems we had was actually on the crossing where we, we lost a tent in the middle. So one of, one of our tents, uh, Remy's tent completely split in half, uh, to do with the, the conditions and the ash. And so we, for the remaining seven weeks of our trip out there, we actually shared a one person tent, um, which was quite cozy. And so really kind of, top and tail spooning most of the time um i'll tell you what though when you get back to university and you've got a whole flat between you it feels real big after that <laughs> yeah, I bet you feel like you're living like a king after that don't you ah oh, it was amazing it was amazing yeah so on that t- trip took you 27 days didn't it in the end yeah so that the hiking was 27 yeah, days so the that trip across were you how long were you aiming to do that in and how did you go about planning that route to get there so at the time you could we you broke it down into four different legs. So from the coast up until day four, you're actually on a road and it's not particularly exciting hiking. And so that logistically is quite easy. You can just kind of pick stuff up at shops and things if you need extra food. Once you start going into the inland, that's where it gets a little bit more complicated because you get a lot further away from any resupply points. There were there were two points in the centre, which uh, are remote outposts of, at the end of very very popular hiking trails. So Lagar, which is at the end of a very famous hiking trail called the Lorga Vega Trail, which we joined for the first five days in from the the um, the road. Uh, now we ended up doing that in three, so we we actually ended up staying there a couple of days and exploring the area. Beautiful place, big rhyolite cliffs and volcanoes and. Yeah, everything you want in Iceland, Very really nice. big geysers and, and vents. That that area, there was a so, car that went in, so we had a resupply sent to that. And similarly, 12 days later, we had one at the next hut and then a village about a week after that. So over the years that you've obviously been on these long expeditions and things like that, how's your approach changed to planning these kind of trips? it's probably got a little bit more refined um i don't think i've ever planned a trip quite as in depth as that iceland trip or perhaps the scotland trip and that is directly correlated to the fact that i was supposed to be doing my dissertations at university and so anything other than that is way more interesting so you put so much energy into it what i learned from those trips is that you can plan to the nth degree and you can plan sort of your exact route per day and all this sort of thing. But then one thing changes and that whole thing shuffles off course. And so rather than then, we, then I would kind of focus on things where you plan it day by day by day by day. Now I will 
plan everything based on an average pace. And so, for example, the trips I do in Chile, I, I know I do an average pace of about 28 to 30 kilometers a day from experience there. And so I plan everything on 25k a day and then I add a 10% window on top of that. So even on the, the lower average, I know I'm going to beat that. And it's quite regular that you'll do a 50 kilometer day. So you do a day like that, you've, you've gained a day off. Adding that extra 10% gives that extra window again. Each day you're getting a little bit more of a window that if you get a bad weather window, you don't have the pressure to go out in conditions that you shouldn't go out in. Um, now, particularly in water sports, that's a really useful thing to have in your side. If you've got time on your side, you can make much safer decisions. Same when you're going up into winter mountains. Um, and I would say really for anything you're doing, if you have time, you're much less stressed. The the Iceland and the that kind of first Scotland trip, the, the planning I did, like I say, was super, super detailed. And we did focus on things like what our evacuation points were going to be, our food rationing, um, sort of calorific intake per day of your food, all your kind of emergency things, how you're going to deal with broken tents and broken stuff. And we focused a lot on the first Iceland trip on weight reduction. Um, I literally shaved loads of stuff off bags and cut straps off and all this sort of thing. Probably saved about the weight of one chocolate bar. Um, but for us, that kind of felt, it felt mentally like you were doing something then. Whereas now I'll kind of plan a little bit more on the whole of things and then focus on the the uh, the planning for what if what if something breaks what if you break how can i get out how can i fix it if you can't what can you do yeah what are some of the um, the toughest mental challenges you've had to face as as a result of some of these expeditions i'll preface this quite interestingly on on all those trips i've done i, I take a diary daily and i i rate my mood out of 10 and so 10 out of 10 is the best day ever going to be the memory forever one out of 10 is i'd rather forget that day on average i'll sit about an eight out of ten so generally i'm fairly positive on expeditions and by doing that in your calendar you can watch if your mood is dropping or rising it's okay to have a bad day everyone has a bad day it doesn't matter what you're doing you're going to get a day where everything's not lining up right weather's not right that sort of thing your feet are sore you spilt your tea in the morning that's fine but if you start getting it progressively going lower then that's going to become a problem at some point later on um i would say the same for sort of general life too I mean, if your mood starts to sump permanently then you need to change something the biggest challenges i've personally found have been when you've gone into those long mood dips and that's normally related to long periods of solo travel long periods of bad weather, uh, personal injuries, um, lots of little things adding up like that, so not getting enough food, not getting enough sleep, that sort of thing. Do you find that you much prefer to travel with other people then, I'm guessing, not because I've met a few people who they absolutely just, they love the, the solitude of being alone, whereas obviously there's some people which I can imagine, like yourself, who do love to be with others. Yeah, I, I, like, I like both. So... I really enjoy going on an independent trip. I mean, the, the Scotland trip for me was predominantly on my own. And, and that for me, I think, was pretty life-changing. I really enjoyed that, being out there totally under your own pace, timings, devices. 
but I have noticed that generally you are about a point happier on your mood on average if you've got somebody else to share that with. What happens is that when your mood's dropping, it's very rare that theirs drops at the same pace and you end up picking each other back up again. Um, that really helped on this last trip where we were unexpectedly denied permits to get to the, the end goal of the trip we wanted to do, uh, completely out with our control. And obviously that really affected our mood through about 50% of that trip. And um, there was quite a lot of anger and frustration bubbled under the surface there. But we managed to put a positive on it and both of us sort of kept happy and, and made light humour about cussing them out um, between us and you could kind of hold your mood up. Whereas I think if you're on your own, that would have spiralled pretty dark. Yeah, it's about like I spoke to a guy, Leon Bustin, who's a who's an ultra runner, and he like obviously a lot of people say it, but he was saying about controlling the controllables. If you if if it's something that's out of your control, there's nothing you can do, and there's no point in getting worked up about it. But it's obviously very easy to say that, but when you can actually learn to just let the uncontrollables go, life does get a lot better when you can just forget them. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if that comes up later on, then it's okay to get that out later on. But if you've got something that needs done now, that can wait. And I'm not a massive believer of bubbling something up forever. But if you've got something like that, then you can kind of, you can work through it until you have the time, space and area to process that, I think. Um, yeah. But yeah, definitely having, having a, a friend or a buddy out there definitely makes that mood a little happier. So traveling alone, what's the what's the one main thing that you've learned about yourself through those solo trips? That's a good question. Um, I've known I'm pretty bloody minded. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, uh, I, yeah, there's a lot of times I, for the, the Monroe mission, for example, the, the kayaking side I actually enjoyed on the whole. There was a few moments where you're very scared with conditions get out of control. But because you're on the sea and the sea is pretty unrelenting when it gets to conditions that are like that, you're so focused on surviving out of it, you don't really have the chance to mentally process that. Whereas if you're in a hill environment or mountain environment, for me, the Cairngorms were the, the most difficult bit. Extreme Arctic conditions in the top had a really bad snow year. Total whiteouts, really strong winds, literally spending your day and night counting your footsteps and changing compass bearings and just seeing white and nothing all day or black and nothing as the night falls. And that over time starts to really weigh on your mind. Um, now for me, there was about three months of that where I was having sleep paralysis dreams every night. And so li literally mentally dropping, um, which was quite amazing. But at no point did I really feel like I was going to permanently quit that. There were days that I said, no, I, I really don't want to go up there. Um, but there was never a point where I felt like quitting, which was quite, it's quite sort of empowering in a way. Um, and that, that, yeah, I've definitely kind of taken that on further on in life. Um, yeah. So that, that trip itself, obviously it was 364 days and you spent the majority of that on your own. So how long did you plan to spend on this trip and what, also what was the purpose of it? So, yeah, good question. So the, the purpose of the trip was after university, I, I wanted to do another trip like Iceland. I really enjoyed Iceland with Remy. Um, I enjoyed the challenge. I enjoyed what we experienced there. And I wanted to do something a little bit bigger and a little bit longer. And also wanted to do something in a kayak because kayaking is my first passion as a sport. 
and I'd never really done any journeys with it. The idea of going around the coast of Scotland by, by kayak is, is it follows what was the original highway. So before roads, everyone went around by sea. And so you have an awful lot of the Scottish culture fringing the coast. And by doing that, I would really familiarise myself with an awful lot of Scotland that I'd never been to. I would get to see some coasts, I'd get to improve my paddling and just explore a lot of Scotland that was new to me. A lot of my degree was very centralised on trying to get your mountain leader qualification. That was the kind of end goal of the outdoor education side, the summer mountain leadership. And so I also wanted to tackle something hill-based and the logical progression was to try and do a round of the Munros. Initially, that plan had been to do the Munros via kayak and paddle and run into them. But once I started planning that, I realised that that would just be a complete logistical nightmare. And so broke it into two stages. The kayaking side, well, I did tackle a few. I did about 20-odd uh, as I paddled past the, the Sky Coolin, Ben Hope, a couple in Noidart, the ones that make sense as you pass, and Mull. And then the inland bit then became more of a winter journey. Um, now, Remy and I both really enjoyed doing winter mount mountains, winter Munros. We were very familiar with winter navigation, much more familiar with winter hill skills. And so that bit for me was really more familiar than the paddling side. By combining the both, you've got a really good gauge of Scotland. You get the out outside edge and you get the inside bit. I planned it to be eight months. Um, the kayaking side took about the time I thought it was going to take. A little bit longer, perhaps, because of weather windows and I had to go and graduate and things like that. I did have a couple of jump outs where I went and did some adult things. Um, and some not very adult things. I went and jumped into a canyon on a canyon swing for a weekend and things like that. We just go and have some fun. Uh, <laughs> the... Yeah, yeah, you know, you get opportunities sometimes. It's, it's hard to say, though. Have to take them. The... I got to do it, got to do it. The Monroe, the Monroe side of things took a lot longer. Um, I was lucky with my summer. I got a relatively good summer weather window. The winter was one of the worst, windiest, coldest winters in about 60 years. And that was brutal, especially doing that by a tent. And so that, that slowed me down significantly. Um, and uh, yeah, just, so, by, just by coincidence, it took a year. Do it well. One day less than a year, just got it. In yeah, yeah, I was going to make that. I was going to make that date. <laughs> yeah. The so what I'm interested in as well, because obviously for that trip you won UK and Scottish Adventure of the Year. So, what did you ever expect to win that? And also, how did you find out that 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 this award was coming to you that year? Um, so short short answer, I'd, I'd actually never heard of it until uh, <laughs> I knew I was nominated. <laughs> so, so somebody nominated me. Thank you, whoever you are. Uh, I don't know who it was. Um, I, I found that I was nominated while working in Patagonia. Um, so on the back of that expedition, I got given the opportunity to go and kayak guide in Chile. And the the ceremony where I ended up winning it, I, I was actually in a bar with a friend from Ireland uh, in in Chile and we found out I'd won the Scottish one and started celebrating at which point the power went out I didn't actually know I'd won the, the other one until the next morning <laughs> so we went straight back out again <laughs> um, but no it was, it was it was a nice surprise but it wasn't it was never the end goal the end goal was really just to go and explore yeah, yeah. so 
obviously you said there that you got the opportunity to go to Chile and uh, do do some guiding there. What was what was that like initially? Moving obviously away from family, away from friends, and going into such a remote area of the world and starting a job like that. Um, it didn't feel like too much of a jump. So it was it was a big jump. It was the first time I'd gone somewhere I didn't speak the language. Um, most of the work I'm doing, you're working with Americans there anyway, uh, and it was the the sort of learning to speak with the locals that, that took time, and I'm, I'm still terrible at Spanish. Um, but it, it was the, it was kind of a leap of faith in that I, I had someone that I'd known had worked there a long, long, long time ago who'd suggested I got in touch. And I applied to four different companies down there and all of them said no. At that point, I had no kayak guiding qualifications, uh, just on the back of expeditions uh, and my mounted leader, summer mounted leader. Two weeks before the start date for that season, I, I was looking into winter, having done my first year freelancing, doing Duke of Edinburgh's guiding Ben Nevis treks, the kind of standard freelance work. And I got an email saying we've had a guide dropped out. Would you like to come down and guide? And at that point in my life, I, I was young, single, free. I said, yeah, you know what, I'll, I'll go for that. And absolutely fell in love with it. It's It, it looks like such an incredible place and to do the things you've done there you know like kayaking through patagonia and stuff like that so how much time do you get on the side of obviously doing these tours and the guiding to go and do your own little expeditions um you know in between jobs so nowadays if i if i'm down there for the season i'm contracted in for about 20 days a month um now the guy chris uh, i work with the company i work with now is called kayak in patagonia uh and he's brilliant he, he really gets it he gets why you're going there he gets why you want to be there and so within that 10 days you've got spare within a month he normally will try to have at least one window where you've got three or four days together which is about the time you need to do anything really interesting there um, there's quite a lot of commuting in and out to places certainly if you do the kayaking stuff out with the river system your last day is always going to be a day on a ferry because it's the only way out and your first day, half of the day is spent driven in. So having that three or four days allows you to go and climb hills, line into distant lakes, do these more remote adventures. And it's on you if you've got the energy to then use that time. And if you don't want to use that time and you want to go and relax or do something else, then that's that's fair and square too. The fir- first year I was there, I had a lot less time. Um, and that year was really focused on learning how to guide and I've been taught by her man the chap I worked for then and the two American guides I worked with for a short amount of time who were qualified guides and we, we kind of shared experience I, I taught them expedition skills um, from what I'd learned and they really taught me the fundamentals of guiding principles and that was really the kind of whole focus of the first season um, and then after that I kind of felt more comfortable to go and play. Your So you have obviously have you, now you have your own guiding business so is that solely scottish based and you go work out for someone else in chile yeah it's sort of subcontracting if i'm overseas so the the company i work for up here my company is is kayak summer isles and we're predominantly scotland based um i I share the business with a friend who who does a lot of canoeing trips and we do a bit of both bit of canoeing bit of kayaking bit of hill walking climbing um starting to venture a bit more into overseas stuff so next year we've got a trip into greenland uh, which is quite exciting um potentially doing some stuff in norway in the future uh and then patagonia 
I can run trips through our business, but it's subcontracting through with Chris, who I work with down south. Uh, a question I have as well about your your expeditions that you do. How do you train for them in the build up to them? What are you, what sort of things are you doing? Are you um, like are you doing a lot of cardio based things? Are you doing any weight training? Are you you know is it all a bit mixed modal kind of thing that you're doing? So the the only trip I've ever really properly trained for was Iceland um, and that we trained for again by lifting bottles of water up the hill to sell them um, but we spent a lot of time going up and down staircases um, I've never really been a gym person so I, I do a lot of body weight exercise press-ups pull-ups hangs that sort of thing I, the the other trips that I've had the the Scotland one the p- predominantly the Scotland one was really I, I plan the time in to get fit on the job so because i had that time window i have a good baseline fitness and i know that the first two weeks you're just going to be a little bit slower the best way you can train for something is to do the thing you wanted to train for um now that in your young 20s for me worked perfectly i wasn't going out to set a record i wasn't going for speed it didn't matter if I was not going at the full pace that I had my potential for. As a 33-year-old as of tomorrow, uh, I would look back and tell myself that I'd stretched a little bit more. Yeah, uh, getting older, (laughs) feeling it. Um, Yeah, I I would definitely definitely have stretched a little bit more because it does catch up on you eventually a little bit. (laughs) Um, And then the the Patagonia trips, my my training for that really was work it's a very physical working environment there you're working in 30 to 40 knot winds you're towing clients almost on the daily um i'm normally at the end of the season working down there about as physically fit as i ever get as a paddler and so by the time you go into those expeditions you're really at the top of your game um seamus who comes and joins me for those trips he's a, a gamekeeper and so he's he's doing stalking guiding fishing guiding deer hunting He's on the hill most days, and he's often dragging things about, like dragging deer off the hill, that sort of thing. And so he's got that working environment that's got a good baseline fitness. Um, but you absolutely can train for an expedition by cardio and, and that sort of thing as well. Yeah. What yeah. are you doing in terms of for recovery? Because obviously it's a very physical job that you do, and to do it for three, four months at a time with, you know, 10 days off it, but that's still spent going hiking, going kayaking, going doing whatever. So what are you doing to sort of stay on top of recovery and making sure that you're not getting injured and, you know, that you're feeling at the best you can for a given day? So when I was younger, I, I didn't do that much. If I'm honest, I just kind of muscled through it a little bit. And that does catch up on you. Like you, you feel, you feel invincible when you're younger um, I'm talking about this, it's less than a decade ago, but <laughs> in my first my first season there, I, I, I kind of pushed that a little too far. So I, I ended up probably breaking a rib. I mean, I, I snapped a paddle over my chest and ended up really hurting myself. And that led into pneumonia. And I ended up working for a month with increasingly severe pneumonia and was able to macho and muscle through that but as soon as I stopped, I was out for three months and I couldn't get up to the kitchen without going down to one knee. I mean, it was absolutely debilitating. And ever since then, have sort of realised that actually you do need to look after yourself. 
And so it's a very common term in the, the outdoor industry that you get seasonal burnout. If you overwork yourself and over push yourself, it's not if, but when your body will just say, that's it, that's enough. And you start losing your ability to effectively do your job properly. And so finding the point and pace for your body is different for everyone where you're able to work to continuously is quite an important skill to develop in the outdoor industry. Um, now for me, I find, I find 20 days a month actually works okay. Um, it, it gives you time to rest on those days off if you want to. And in a weird sort of way, doing other things on those days off, like your own personal adventures or going off with your partner or these sort of things, in a weird sort of way, although you're being physically active, they're rest as well because it's on your terms and you're you're doing it without having to think about a collective group. Your mental state's in a very different position. Um, and there are a lot of times where you're just relaxing. I mean, yeah, you, you do. It's it's okay just to sit in front of the fire and read a book or chill out on social media. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> something I want to get onto as well because I read I read a recent interview that you did. Uh, well, not recent, sorry, I read one of the interviews that you did. Um, and I wanted to talk about uh, through the lens of the media and how they alter our perceptions of different places around the world. And I've got a quote here that you said, where you said, society today is blighted with the media showing the worst of our kind. People are, people are as kind and generous in the most war-torn corners of the world as the most uh, civilized suburbs, perhaps even more so. So I want to hear some of your experiences of that and how you got to that realisation of the fact that the media portrays this negative side of the world that actually just isn't true for a lot of it. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. So a lot of what we read in the news, and I, I mean, case in point, I've spent my whole day today reading about what's going on in Israel and Palestine, um, which is horrifying and no one would want to go experience that and really feel for those people. But you often find if you scroll through social media and media, you're you're reading about the worst of the worst because that's what interests us as people. It draws your attention. A lot of places I've been, a lot of countries, I I have this. I've often said that the harsher the climate and the the harsher the environment, the friendlier the people are. And it sort of rings true that if you are somewhere where it is hard to get by, be that by weather or condition or whatever's going on in your area you have to look after each other and you have you have to be a civilization and you have to be a community and I, I found anywhere that I've been that is generally the case most people are really really lovely 99.999% of us just want to get along with life and be happy we're not seeking to be aggressive or angry of, of course those people exist in the world but most people are, are lovely, um, from my experience, and I have a firm, yeah, one firm thing... belief that every every person you have common ground with as well. You can always find common ground with someone. Oh, hundred percent. I the one thing I yeah. realised of how the media affected us was when I moved over to Australia. I just stopped looking, at, stopped looking at the BBC, GMB, all those things because I couldn't get them. And I realized actually how much better things were because we weren't just being fed negative story after negative story after negative story about Iran or what's going on in Syria or something else that's going on in the world that is, you know, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a huge problem. Don't get me wrong, but we're only seeing the negative side of that place. We're not seeing how 
families are sticking together in little uh, communities and making sure that everyone's okay and everyone's fed and everyone's water got water and i think moving away from looking at general media obviously there's a benefit to doing it but uh, every now and then to learn new things but i think staying away from it for the most part actually is very beneficial for how you look at the world and also your mental health as well yeah yeah i mean i i I will put my hand up first and say I'm, I'm totally, totally bad on sitting on my phone and reading the news and going down that kind of doom scroll and sort of suddenly thinking the world is a, a horrible place. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah, it's good to be aware of those things too. I mean, obviously we need to be aware of what's going on in these things because otherwise you can't drive for change and, and hopefully improve situations where the situations aren't good. Um, and certainly what is happening around the world just now is not good in a lot of places. It's it's awful. Um, but there is a lot of good as well. And, and it's... So, I remember someone in a, was describing to always look for the helpers in any situation, always look for the people helping. Because there are, there are people trying to do the best thing. Um, yeah, that's 100%. Yeah. And then... One, and if, if there aren't, maybe one... it's your turn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly one one thing that i want to get onto as well now is sort of planning your own adventure so for those people who are listening who want to you know they're, they're thinking of doing their own expedition somewhere and you know they're not sure quite how to go about it what are the three or four main things that you would say you would recommend doing for those people um so if you're looking for something to do i mean the first thing i would do is is pick something um now that can be anything you want it to be be quite aware of your own abilities and where your ambition and ability crossover is where you want to be um if i've never climbed a mountain before i'm not going to go and do k2 because it's going to end badly um but if you let's let's say for example i i'm quite keen on my hill walking and i want to do something long distance I might look for somewhere that has got a good long distance trail, something that is relatively wild that is going to push me, but is somewhere that has the opportunity that if it does go wrong, I have options. So I might pick somewhere, let's say like Scandinavia, the UK or Europe or somewhere where it might be expensive and you need insurance for it, but help will come if you need it. Um, and, and plan for that unexpected um, in, within your route choice if you're looking for a route as a first route. The more you do these things, the more experienced you'll get and the more aware of your abilities and inabilities you'll get. And then you'll know where you can and can't push on that. Um, take it step by step on that. It is okay to push yourself a little bit though. I mean, you, it, we all want to push ourselves. If you don't push yourselves, you don't learn. And... I like to say experience comes just after you needed it. If you go out on these things, make a mistake, if you've got your systems in place that you can come back safe and alive, you will learn from that. And you can bring that with you onto the next trip and the next trip and the next trip. Um, so the first first thing I do is, is pick, pick something appropriate. Pick something within your ability, but also within your ambition that you can cross over and be really honest on that and be, be quite self-honest on that um i got taught in university i've actually just written something about that today funny enough 
uh, by a chap called John Cluett, who was one of our mountain instructors. And he, he used the expression, always have a second plan A. You don't need a plan B. And that is the idea that when you're planning for the, the unexpected, if something changes and you need to alter your route or alter your plan, you've got equal opportunity plans that are as useful to pick as the one you've got. It might not be that driving ambition that's got you there, but it's a plan that you can take that you know will work. And so a plan B is a lesser plan. You're much less likely to take it if you need it. You're going to go, I don't want to do that. That's not what I've come here for. If I'm going for the summit of a hill and the conditions come in that I am not going to get up there or more importantly back from it safely, I might say, you know what? I can do plan B. I can go down through that valley. It's going to be a nice walk out. Maybe there'll be a nice waterfall or something. You know, there's there's a second good plan A in there. So have, having a second plan A is always good as well. And and plan that into your trips. Um, and that that's included for me even in in the really the really remote Patagonia trips. We plan that time window. But you also and it's required by the Navy there. But you do also have to plan alternative exit routes that can shorten that trip substantially. Um, if you need to, um, if, if something is not going to plan that you need to shorten that journey by. Amazing. Uh, yeah. And then I wanted to ask as well. So you've obviously done these big expeditions that, you know, like the, the 222 Monroe's and, uh, kayaking through Patagonia and stuff like that. So what now have you got your eyes sort of set on that you want to do as your next big thing? So, yeah, I've, I've got kind of ideas in the bank. Um, I'm getting into that point of life now where I'm unlikely to go off on another massive six months adventure unless something really interesting comes up that I, I can do more than likely with my partner. Um, I'm probably not going to go and do those mega, mega, mega adventures again. I, I'm at a point now where I've got my business, I'm, I'm building, the, building my kayaking business and, and the adventures I'm doing are a month or two months, which are still big adventures, and don't get me wrong, massive adventures. Some of those will be commercial, some of those will be personal. Um, I'm heading out on Friday to go for, I think, 12 days. We're going to cycle my partner and I up to the north of Shetland. Um, and that's kind of the, sort of the annual adventure that I'm quite enjoying now, is these kind of smaller adventures. I do have a big one set on the vaguely near horizon. Uh, I'm in the process of setting up how that's going to happen. Uh, I would quite like to make it happen, which is it's down in South Georgia, um, which is the set of islands a little bit north of the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, now, my father in the late 70s and early 80s worked there as a scientist. And he, as a result, got a mountain named after him, which is about six, seven hundred metres. It's, it's quite a small mountain, but it's a mountain. Um, now, my, 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 dad's, not, my dad's never climbed it's not something it. something you hear every day, um, that. <laughs> Yeah, so he was a product of good fortune there. So the Falklands War started um, and they, they went through basically going through all the scientists or the, the head scientist. He was the base commander at Bird Island and, and sort of said, do you want something named after you? Um, and he was fortunate enough that they <laughs> he, he got a hill after him. I'm now sort of looking into setting up something where I, I, I would really like to get him to the top of that mountain. Um, and getting there in the first place would be quite an adventure hopefully sailing in um i'd like to involve a bit of kayaking on that and and 
yeah, get it, get him up that that little mountain. Um, there is good scope in there. Uh, when it was named for him, it was a much more inaccessible peak than it is now. You had a glacier that came to the sea, blocking off access. That glacier has gone. It has completely receded up into the mountains. And so it is simply a case of landing and going up it now. And so there's quite interesting scope to go and do some comparatives there and see what the changes happened in a pretty short space of time. Um, yeah. It'd be quite interesting to do that, I think. But obviously that, yeah, that's the sort of project that, that is going to need funding and quite serious logistics. Um, yeah. So realistically, yeah, it's interesting away, as well, yeah. isn't it? It's interesting how in so you know in the space of forty plus years, a glacier is just it, it that quickly has just gone almost, and yeah. how that's yeah. obviously then affecting yeah. everything else we're doing, and especially the work you're doing as well. It's affecting. Well, it's it's amazing the where I where I work in Chile, the the visual difference even within a decade on some of the glaciers is astounding. How much they've gone back. There's there's no denying that they are receding quite quickly um yeah, it's, it's a shame that when scary. they carve into the water it's it's pretty spectacular <laughs> um, yeah. yeah it's it's not good um but no i i appreciate you coming on and i appreciate obviously your time and everything so do if you want to plug everything like where people can find you your business and all that and then i've got one final question for you after you've done that yeah, sure. I mean, if, if you want to follow my adventures, you can find me on willcopestake.com uh, or at willcopestake on Instagram and Facebooks and all that sort of jazz. Uh, or you can find my business at kayaksummerisles.com or kayak.summerisles in social media. Amazing. So the final question that I have for you is, how would you like to be remembered? Oh, that's quite a good question. Um, <laughs> positively. <laughs> Um, i think i think yeah the ultimate the ultimate goal in life is to to finish being thought of well by those that you love and care for i think absolutely all right thank you so much for coming on mate really appreciate it thank you for having me it's been a pleasure thank you for listening to another episode of the real lives podcast obviously it's the new year so i've had a little break over christmas i appreciate uh everyone being on standby with the new episodes and all that um but yeah Make sure to like, subscribe, share the podcast, all that bullshit that everyone asks you to do. And I really appreciate the support. And there's more and more amazing guests coming on over the next few weeks. So I hope you enjoy those. And I'll see you next Monday for another episode.